This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that was glad it was April until yesterday. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Ivan Mahati. How are you, Doc? Great, Captain. How are you? Mate, if I was any better, I'd be twins. Mate, for, for a day, for a day, <laughs> April 1st, it was April Fool's Day. Um, I shall talk about that in a second. For, it was a good day. The market was actually was up for the month of April. Was the, was, the market trying, was the market trying to fool the investors? <laughs> like was it April Fool's Day from there the market? Yeah. So up 3.5%, which was great. Uh, unfortunately, Thursday wasn't so kind. And as I have said in the past, we are recording it on Thursdays now. And so we don't know what's happening next. But uh, <laughs> mate, at least at least for a day, at least for a day, we could say month to date, we're in, in positive after spending the last six weeks battling some description of, uh, well, doom and gloom to some degree. And not necessarily unjustified either, by the way. A really, really tough market. Mate, we are going to start off with coronavirus. We are going to talk about a couple of other things. And as always, our favorite part, dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. Should we get on with it? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Before we do, mate, I want to give my service a plug for a change. I give your service a plug most weeks. And frankly, I'm getting sick of being nice to you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But if you want to join a stock picking service that is trying to find the best medium and large cap growth businesses on the ASX, we have a deal for you. How's that for some... That sounds TV awesome. marketing. How good's that? No, That's wait, correct. Wait for the, wait for the steak knives. Um, Motley Fool Share Advisor is our flagship service here in Australia. It happens also to be the one I run. So I'm pretty proud of our eight plus year track record. We've had a tough couple of months, as has everybody in investing recently. Uh, but we put together our best stock picks, plus the very best in education and advice we can find from around the place. I run the service with my mate, Andrew Leggett, our mate, Andrew Leggett. If you want to join Motley Fool Share Advisor, and I think you should, go to fool.com.au slash podcast. We also have a special podcast page where you can get a pretty good deal to join Share Advisor for, I think, I want to say, mate, less than four bucks a week, less than a cup of coffee a week. It's a pretty good deal, I reckon. That sounds like a really good deal. That's cheaper it's than awesome. my coffee. Well, you're, that's because you're paying too much for coffee, dude. What are you drinking? Soy chai, latte, no, half yeah, decaf, yeah, double mocha, uh, bloody no, dolper cream. So, <laughs> so, so I go to one particular cafe and I have <laughs> the almond mocha extra hot, small. Oh, dear. A small, Ex- extra hot almond milk me, mocha. No, it's really good. It's really, really good. Um, but it costs me <laughs> nearly five bucks. Mate, that's because I saw you coming. Like, if this guy wants that many change, we can charge him whatever we want. He's going to pay it. So, Anyways, yeah, I love the coffee. <laughs> there you go. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Help us keep docking coffee. Put it that way. All right. Let's get, let's get on with it. Mate, we have to talk about coronavirus again. Um, I, look, I, I hope our listeners aren't, aren't getting sick of it. I think we're probably getting sick of it a little bit in terms of we wish it would go away, but it's not. And there are investing implications. So it's our job and our duty to bring those to our listeners. And frankly, we're also getting plenty of questions about what to do in the wake of coronavirus. So while it remains the topic of conversation for investors and general public at large, we will continue to talk about it. I will say, as I always do, or try to do most times, um, we will talk about it from a financial lens. That's what we do here. If you're new to the podcast, um, I want to say very clearly, the health crisis is far, far more important than any of the financial implications, um, a loss of life and and injury, uh, both for the person who is lost and, and their loved ones is always much more important than a couple of dollars either way. So that's the far, far more important thing. We're not medical experts though, and we don't really have a lot to offer in that field. What we can do is help our listeners understand the financial implications of it and everything else going on in the financial world. Is that fair to say, mate? I think that's very fair. All right, let's kick it off. Uh, <laughs> so travel is the, I tell you, four months ago, mm. I, I don't know what odds you could have got on flights and a webjet being suspended from trade. 
corporate travel being down by what probably at one point almost ninety percent from its highs. Qantas and Virgin. I mean, I mean, if you, if someone had explained to you what would happen, you could imagine that that you know these companies might be in trouble. I don't know what odds you could have got though if you'd said to somebody, "Give me the odds on a six-month effective shutdown of most of the economy and certainly almost the entire travel industry." It's just a phenomenal, in a, in a bad way, kind of unexpected reality. But here we are. So let's let's start with travel. We've just uh, so again we're recording this Thursday. We've just heard overnight Wednesday night that Webjet was going to. Well, we knew they were trying to raise capital. This has kind of been one of those interesting stories made of. Uh, it, it went from they couldn't raise money at any price through to okay we'll try and raise some money at a dollar seventy through to and the share price was three ninety ish I think when it closed yeah. so big discount half price give or take um, we've also found out the Bain Capital or the private equity mob are going to put in even more than Webjet had asked for so they've gone from not at any price to more than we asked for in the space of what a week a week and a bit mm-hmm. um, so I'm going to ask you what do you make of the Webjet capital raising. So let's say it's 330 odd million, I think is the last number they wanted. It's mm. about half of the then current market cap at about half of the share price. Now there's a, the calculation is slightly different. It's not just half mm. and half, but but they're the numbers. Um, a new investor on the register who in theory knows their stuff. Is this enough to keep Webjet out of trouble? Is it a decent capital raising? What do you think of the of the raising as it's, as it's currently taken shape? Cool. Uh, that's a hard question again. I'm going to actually start with the first part that you said. Yeah, it is true that if I, uh, you know, like, I mean, at, at Extreme Opportunities, we, re- we recommended Webjet. I've actually been on the podcast and said, I like Webjet. Yes, me too. As as the company, uh, as a company and what it does and has good growth. Yep. And so I, I think before anything started, I think it was really hard for anybody to see. This is like a black swan event. If black swan events are by definition yeah. unpredictable. Can I interrupt you? Yeah. There are so many bloody black swan events that everyone's been talking about for the last 10 years, really missing the idea. GFC was a black swan. Then everything was a black swan that we could all see. Suck. If people would say, yeah, the Chinese highline is going to be a black swan. It's like, no, no, no. If it's going to be a black swan, if you know what's coming, yeah. it's by definition not a black swan. Don't overuse the term. Yeah. This one genuinely, no one in September, October last year was saying there will be a pandemic and this will happen. Yeah, and and uh, just to clarify too, like, I mean, so like, I mean, even when this thing started unfolding in China, even at that point, while it looked like you know maybe travel is not the best place for new money, it mm. was still at that point in my view, and if I'm being honest, it was not clear that travel is going to be like basically yeah. in a distressed category, yeah. right? And, and the reason it was not clear is again, unless you had the full view of you know how the virus is spreading around the world and what it's going to do and how people are going to react, it was really really hard. Um, you know, and, and and the thing is that as as the picture unfolded, it became mm. clearer and clearer. Uh, right. But it, it was, in my view, still like. It, and the reason I'm saying this is that if it was clear to me that this was going to happen, I would have <laughs> sold uh, Webjet. But I didn't, right? I mean, you know, the best I could yeah. do is put it on hold. But the fact that I didn't sell Webjet is reflective of the fact that you know it, it's really hard. Again, um, it was really hard to make that prediction. So that, that's it's a, I want to get too, mate, as, as the it's also fair to say as as the news unfolded the share price also gets lower right so it's not just you know if we got the chance if the share price had been $12 the whole way through until the day before the trading hop when we knew that travel was going to be restricted for six months of course you would sell it 12 bucks oh of course but the price falls as more information comes to hand so every one of those points you yeah. know it, it, it's it, it's really it's a good point you make actually because for most investors 
look, you, they can blame us for whatever they want to blame us for, rightly or wrongly. We'll, we've got broad shoulders, we can take it. But as an individual investor, if you're listening to this, it's really tempting in hindsight to look back and go, oh, I should have known at some point along the path this was going to happen or this was going to come about or whatever. By the time it, you know, as the certainties firmed up, share prices fell. Yeah. And at some point, you've got to say, okay, WebJet at 12, there's this thing in China. Okay, fine. WebJet's 11, this thing in China's getting bigger. Okay, fine. Maybe it'll come to Australia, maybe it won't. WebJet at $8, okay, this is coming to Australia. It's going to kind of be a big deal, but the share price is eight bucks. WebJet at five, okay, now they're talking about shutting down travel. WebJet at four, they've just banned travel and now the shares are in a hole. And yeah. so at some point, you've got to, it's really tempting to look back and say either, I couldn't have known or I should have known all along. The, the simple reality is that each one of those points in time, of course, in hindsight, it looks obvious. But yeah. I've said before, and this is not, you know, at SARS and MERS and Ebola and Zika, we could have assumed the same in any of those cases when Webjet was 2 3 $4 on the way up and been completely wrong. There is some element of we're not making excuses for ourselves, but by the same token, but by definition, if the market already knew, we already would have been priced that much, right? So we're not on our Pat Malone either. Yeah. I see, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, again, and I, I don't, you know, to our listeners, we are not making excuses. We're yep. just basically saying, well, you know, the the human psychology, the investor psychology, the right. market psychology works like that. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there are one or two or maybe some astute investors who, uh, who you know, maybe got out on time. And, and again, you know, it's a question of, I guess, maybe you're thinking logically, maybe mm. you got lucky. Again, it's hard to really right. know because we wouldn't have ever enough data points to make those decisions. So, and that's the thing about, you know, the GFC, the, the guys who called in air quotes the GFC yeah. have been calling for disaster before and after yeah. and have been wrong the rest of the time. So exactly. it's one of those things where, you know, it's against human psychology, right? Oh, he said it would happen. It's an Nostradamus thing. Mm. You know, if, if someone makes a prediction, you can almost force fit it backwards. Yeah. You know, there will be housing troubles at some point. Okay. Well, guess what? People have been saying the housing market in Australia is going to crash since 2011, for example. Yeah. That's been, you've been wrong for a long time. Chinese hard landing was supposed to come in 2014. Those people who are making all those predictions have been wrong. Yeah. If you're finally right, it doesn't make you prescient. It just makes you kind of, you know, I, I could say now gold will be at some point $5,000 an ounce. Yeah. And it's going to wait then. Exactly. And I, yeah. I'm going to say, you know, guess what? On the on the April 3rd podcast uh, in 2020, I said gold will be $5,000. And yeah, it took till 2085, but I got there and then I get to say, <laughs> look, look how prescient I was. See, I told you it would happen. It's like, well, yeah, but it's not very useful, mate. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's a massive tangent and this is not on the script. Uh, but but I, th- I thought, you know, we'll discuss mm. this because you mentioned it. Um, yeah, so going back to Webjet. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, so huge question, tangent. It's a huge tangent. But but I think it was a useful tangent. Again, like in, in, in investing behavior is just as important as... As you know, finding yep. ideas and yep. thinking about you know what to buy, what to sell, and, and things like that. So investing behavior is something that we, we are very big on. Um, so it, it, I, I think half useful tangent, maybe. Hopefully, um, we'll assume so. Uh, we'll pretend so. <laughs> so going to Webjet. So here's my thinking on Webjet. You know, when the news came out. Um, as you might have discovered on, on our channels when we were discussing, I was actually quite furious. <laughs> I was furiously angry. You were. And I was furiously angry because... You didn't hold back. Uh, I, yeah. I, I'm gender, uh, in, in generally, in, in our own I- internal conversations, I'm actually I'm a no-hold-barred person. So, <laughs> so if somebody actually does not know me and they're a new employee or something like that, they would probably think I'm very rude. But that's actually how I, mm. I, I like to converse. I like to you know basically say what I feel like and For then sure. I let other people... Uh, you know, uh, figure out, <laughs> uh, get to the meat of the thing. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I don't really sugarcoat. Uh, so one of the things I didn't like about the deal was it looked to me that the company is not getting enough equity mm. to ride out the full storm. Mm. Now, 
um, is that because the company doesn't want to dilute or is that because the company, you know, the, you know, the dilution, you can go up to 25% dilution. Um, the SX has changed um, the rules, mm-hmm. right, to allow for up to 25% dilution. These guys are going up to 20% dilution. Um, or is it because they just couldn't find the money at a desired enough value point, keeping that 25% dilution in mind, mm. um, that gave them enough run. So in my view, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, the reason behind saying why I thought they were not getting um, enough cushion yep. was, um, so like any other travel company, they have receivables and they have payables, right? Mm. And w- one of the things that I'm particularly concerned about is because we don't know how long travel is effectively shut down, because we don't know um, how, when uh, domestic travel or regional travel in different geographies are going to open up, yep. there is every likelihood that some of those receivables are actually not going to come through because the those receivables are likely to default. Yeah. Right. And and this is this is clearly stated in um, in the presentation pack in the risks section. It's clearly written that, you know, we are making certain assumptions about the receivables and the receivables, if they don't come through, mm. it's going to be a problem. The other, uh, and I'm talking about the problems here first because, you know, that's more interesting to talk about. Um, <laughs> that's true. And, 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 you know, I'm fully acknowledging that this is a recommendation that I had made and it's not really worked out and it's on hold mm. um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I've been wrong on this. Uh, and maybe my fact that I've been wrong is, is, is coloring my view. <laughs> but um, the other thing that I think is onerous is so there's there's the liquidity that the company is counting on is has got some debt components that have undrawn uh, revolver or debt yep. you know uh, that they can get from the bank. But there is a constraint that has been put on them, yep. which is you need to maintain at least hundred million dollars of liquidity. Yeah. Now the problem I have is this and is just liquidity for our, for our purpose of listeners. Basically, it's available cash, right? Available cash. Yeah. So. Or at least the ability to pay the bill yeah. in some other way. Some sort of yeah, are receivables included in that liquidity? Uh, no. You know? okay, well. <laughs> as far as I know, no. Yeah. So 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 because the receivables may not come through and you still have payables which you have to pay mm-hmm. and you have to maintain hundred million dollars of cash, that is really a sticky position. Mm-hmm. You need a lot of things to go right to actually sail through. Um, yeah, right. So uh, yeah, I, I was I was really concerned about that. Um, it looks like the company is budgeting until December. Um, that doesn't, you know, maybe with cuts and so on, that seems like uh, maybe mm. they'll scrape through. And and then the final point I was I was, was going to make is um, there is a rights component to it. It's not a non. It's not a rena- renounceable right. Yep. Um, yes. So. I think the company is betting that, you know, at $1.75, if the rights are being given, you know, I think this is a one-is-to-one right, uh, a lot of people will take up. But I wonder how many people actually are going to take that up, right? So there might be a shortfall there yeah. on the right side. So they might not actually get the cash they're expecting to get. Now, I changed my view a little bit, and, and this is this is all speculation right. land, because this morning I read uh, on the fin that Bain Capital, which which they were apparently in discussion. Again, this is speculation because we yep. don't know um, because the company has not really announced anything about this. Uh, Bain Capital was in discussions for some prefer, preferred stock or some convertibles, but that probably didn't go through. Yep. And then the speculation now is that Bain Capital is actually participating in the equity raise and mm-hmm. they're upsizing the equity raise. Yeah, so Bain want to give Webjet more money than they actually wanted. Yeah. And Webjet are probably going to take the extra money because, hey, why wouldn't you? Yeah. But it, may, it gives Bain a decent sized position on the, on the company's register. Yeah. So, so that to me puts a little bit of a floor on the company in the sense that uh, it, it still doesn't help in the sense that if the company is running low on cash,
cash, then Bain will demand its pound of flesh yeah. and it might take the company, say, private at 80 cents, you know, 50 cents to the dollar or whatever, right? right? right, right. Because that's what... Uh, well, that's if I had the cash and I was going to take that, I would exactly do that. So, I mean, uh, Bain is not here to do social service, right? Bain is here to make money for its investors. So let's, so, let's just break that in a second, mate, as you move through. So they're going to they're gonna give them a dollar seventy a share. Yeah. Bain are probably hoping, I assume, that that dollar seventy is worth 10 bucks at some point in the future. Yeah. At the very least, they're also putting their foot to some degree on the company's share register and saying, but if this gets worse... And if the share price falls further, yeah. we also might decide to go and either make a takeover or add some more capital some other way. They kind of get because you're big and you've got a lot of cash, which obviously is a nice yeah. combination. You kind of get some different options around this, right? So if and when the company's shares fall to a fifty cents, as you say, yeah. because they need more money, they, the, company, the market realizes that this is kind of you know death or death or savior somehow. Yeah. The Bain might say, "Great, we'll take the rest out from you. Thank you very much." Yeah. Or they might be, I mean, I imagine if they're, I don't know, actually, I don't know whether they'd rather have a 50 cent share price, take the lot out or a $10 share price and make a lot of money on their first investment. But either way, they give them the whip hand in a way that retail investors don't have. Yeah, exactly. So so I think that's, the, that's, the, that, that's yeah. So in my mind, that, that puts a bit of a floor on the company. So I would like to know how, um, I mean, I was very close to thinking that I should sell it. Uh, right. But then, you know, I changed my mind uh, when I saw that information saying, okay, maybe that puts a bit of a floor. And I'd like to see actually what the cash situation works out. Now, I, I think the WebBeds business is actually fundamentally a good business. But, you know, in this situation, a lot of things change. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I mean, travel to get back to its normal, it's going to take a long time. Right. And, and I think, Effectively, at this point, you can assume that if you bought the shares, like we did, for example, eleven dollars something, that's yep. basically a write-off in the sense that you you not, it's going to take a while to get to eleven dollars and whatever, Correct. right? Uh, so I think that part is basically gone. You just, that's that's basically lost. But that, that's not useful frame uh, reference here. What you really need to think about is from whatever the current share price is yes. going to be, yes. uh, what's going to happen. In my view, like, I mean, like right now, based on what I know, uh, this is a company that is, I am more closer to on the, you know, between the hold and the sell in that spectrum. Okay. This is not a company that I, you know, it's like basically right now, it's not a quality company in my view, mm-hmm. right? It's not a quality company because it's basically a distressed asset. Yep. It's a distressed asset in which there are a lot of variables, right? Now, it's a high risk as high risk play, just just give me a sense of why you 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 your service extreme opportunities. You've got lots of high risk investment there, or these higher risk investments. I mean, you guys specialize in, which is great by the way. You're doing a great job of it. You specialize in trying to find the you know some higher risk companies with potentially higher return. In some version of the future, Webjet. I mean, let's say you buy shares in the rights issue of dollar seventy, just to pick an argument, and the share price goes to ten bucks. There's a five x return there. Yes, there's a chance of zero or something less than 5x. Maybe it gets taken at 50 cents. Maybe it goes to zero. How is that different from the risks you're taking the rest of your service? How do you how do you separate the Webjet kind of risk-reward story from another type of risk-reward story? Well, that's a great question. I love that question. I, actually, so here's my... Okay, I'm going to actually get into a bit of a rant then. First, I'm going to rant about <laughs> sorry, something. Sorry, Phil. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> so, sorry. So, so, and apologies <laughs> to the fools. So I, I think there is, there is a lesson here for ASX company managers. And the reason I want to say this is a company like Webjet, which raises money to pay dividends, I think that should just be, you know, it's it's not illegal, but that's basically theoretically completely, you know, it's completely nonsense. That should not be done. That's number one. Number two, there are a number of companies on the ASX which maintain a lot more debt than they actually have cash, right? They might be good companies, but you know, this is not prudent business management in my view. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, 
well, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. Take Booking.com as as an example of a company which is basically a you know people people if people use Hotels.com to make bo- uh, make bookings, then they know that it's basically Hotels.com is owned by uh, by, by Booking. Yep. Right now, the share price of Booking has fallen a lot. Okay. Right, but this company is nowhere near distressed. And it's actually not going to get distressed because it has a balance sheet cash. It's got a it's got fair bit of debt. It's got about nine billion dollars US of debt, but it's got seven point three billion dollars of cash. Okay, right. This business can sail through for two years without dying. It's not going to get distressed. Right. So I think this is a lesson for a lot of ASX managers. Like you know, in company like Cochlear, for example, basically is, you know went into a situation where it need to raise cash because it has done a very poor job of cash management, and. I think there is a lesson here for for management, you know, for some management at least. Um, and that there are companies on the ASX, for example, like you know Bravura, which has got a lot of cash mm. uh, on its balance sheet. Um, a company like Altium, for example, has got a lot of cash on its balance sheet. There is a lesson here for some of these companies that have been aggressively pursuing growth, trying to pay dividends, maintaining a lot of debt. Mm. That you know this works well, but you can you know in when when stuff like this happens, you are basically in in in, in distress mode. Now I'm not saying Cochlear is in distress mode, yeah. but yeah. a lot of the travel companies basically are in distress mode because they they were just essentially traveling um, on a path that is dangerous, right? Yeah. You know, highly leveraged. Uh, you know too dependent on cash flow so that's my rant this is a funny uh, look no i think it's right and it, <laughs> you know you know there's a warren buffett quote for every circumstance right so so i'm gonna throw one in because i just like to and yeah not not because it annoys you but you know if that doesn't annoy you then hey that's a nice bonus no i'm kidding uh buffett said, you know you, you never want to be in a position he does not much about leverage actually but he says you never want to be in a position where you're relying on the kindness of strangers mm-hmm. and to some degree that's kind of the that's what i think of when i think about the way you're talking about it it's you know to some degree yeah cochlear might say well we're okay to have less cash because we figure we can always go to the market and get some if we need some Mm. Now that's possibly true, but it but it re, it retains the risk, a la Webjet or something else, that in certain circumstances it may not be true. And so even if it's unlikely, and again, I mean, no one had no one was planning for the cash requirement of the next six months, right? You, no one's saying, you know what, next just in case there's a pandemic, I'm going to make sure we got X cash on hand. But to some degree, that's the reality, and and every business is implicitly or explicitly making that choice every time they raise capital buy businesses pay dividends there's always that question of how much cash do we think is prudent in the good times no one wants cash in the bad times everyone wants cash maybe yeah. it's always been thus actually i mean this is this is the 87 crash all over again it's probably from the gfc all over again and it's why the bank stress tests were put in place post gfc was to say hey guys you're not carrying enough cash this is for the the, the big banks both here and overseas we want to make sure you're carrying more cash and i, I have to say mate I'll give the regulators a bit of a rap. When they could have said, oh, the GFC is a one-off, don't worry about it, it's all too hard, when they could have given into lobbying and political pressure, our banks, the, the foreign banks, are going into this issue much better capitalised than they would have been had the GFC not happened and had there been no regulatory response to the GFC itself. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think part of the problem is that because we didn't see really a recession during the GFC, um, the companies, I, th- I think there is an overall... Um, balance sheet weakness across uh, companies. I think in terms of how it, it's just. I think it's 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 the approach and style of management. I'm going to take another shot here. At you know, I, I think a lot of companies on the ASX treat the ASX like a quantitative easing platform where you basically print shares. <laughs> Printing shares work well when the share prices are high. Yep. They're really distressful when the share price is low. Correct. Right. And, and this is a point of distinction I'm trying to make because you know booking is not going to go to the the market or Nasdaq or whatever it is listed 
it and say, I need more money because it's not going to do that. A lot of the big companies actually do not do that. They basically treat the market as a secondary platform. Yes, they issue options and things like that to their employees. It's a liquidity platform for other people where they issue options and things like that, but it's not a liquidity platform to raise capital. Whereas a lot of our businesses are treating that as, oh, we just can get any capital at any price we want. Well, it's great when you get it at you know twenty dollars. Not great mm. when you get it at one dollar. Correct. Because correct. you know it kind of hurts. And and I think you know sh- shareholders need to realize that too. Because if the shareholders don't realize that, it's ultimately our capital is being destroyed. Yeah. Right. So uh, anyway, anyway. So uh, yeah. What was the question that I was trying to answer? Again? <laughs> I don't think anyone remembers, but I like the rant, mate. Thank you. Oh. Let's let's move on just for fun. Um, I'm going to move on. Speaking of, speaking of capital, so we talked about Webjet. Uh, Flight Center remains suspended, of course. Um, I own Webjet shares. I'll disclose that right now. Um, I should have done at the beginning. Virgin and Qantas, speaking of travel, together want to, speaking of rants, I'm going to have a go this time. <laughs> they want they want $5.4 billion, apparently, together, out of the government to keep them flying. Now, Virgin, I think it's, it, it, wants a, it wants a loan from the government of something around half its market cap. I think Qantas's number is not miles off that either. It might have been more than that as a proportion. I think Qantas is saying we're bigger, so we deserve more money. I understand that. I, look, I, I completely get, by the way, and Qantas should stick its hand out if 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 a competitor is getting some cash from the government, you want to you want to, you want your share as well. Five point four billion dollars worth of cash from the government. I tweeted during the week. I don't, did I read about this last week? I may have. Um, they, you know, the government should be requiring for the Australian taxpayer, for the Australian population, its pound of flesh when it comes to this particular potential bailout. If you're giving someone a $1.4 billion at what will, I'm certainly sure, be a very low interest rate mm. with no upside if things go well and you lose the whole lot if Virgin goes broke, the government should not be in the interest, the business, in my view, of giving out $5.4 billion worth of taxpayer money, frankly, when we need the cash, when there's already going to be a massive budget deficit to keep these airlines flying without getting some share of either the upside if it works or frankly an ownership stake in the distressed asset if it does fail because at least the government gets something for its business for its money after the fact thoughts on that from a from a stock market or an investing perspective or a policy perspective if you want um like i mean yeah so i i think first of all like you know uh, i i think airlines are uh, in a much required infrastructure type of thing, right? Yep. I mean, you need it. Yep. At the same time, I think if if that kind of money is being demanded, then basically the government is landing up owning the airlines. Like, is the government going to own both airlines? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that's, that's, that's you know. yeah. Here's the thing, Matt. I I I would not have a problem with that at all. I mean. The reality is going to be these airlines are never going to be cheaper than they are now. Well, I mean, they might get a zero, but in terms of in the real market, like if you think about the value of an airline as a going concern Mm. at some future point when the government chooses to sell in a time of its own choosing, the fact we need it as a society, so effectively, yeah, the government owns it, but effectively Australia then has two airlines that in theory are going to compete at arm's length with each other, and they certainly should. Um, There's kind of, I don't, I mean, I guess they go broke again. Governments could own loss-making businesses. I guess it's possible. But it feels to me like this is exactly the time you want a proactive government, even the Reserve Bank, to be out there saying, you know what, we'll make distressed purchases of quality assets when the market's simply undervaluing what the future looks like, even though it's got to get raise cash to get through this period. 
Yeah, I, I think I broadly agree with that. Like, I mean, I, I think the the ownership structure of Virgin probably makes it a little bit more complicated because it's yeah. it, because it's owned by other airlines, yeah. majority owned by other airlines, which are owned by Slovenian governments, right? So again, I don't know what the decision making process. I, I mean, yeah. yeah, like if Virgin, if if the government is buying a ninety percent stake at like one cent or whatever is the share price for Virgin, I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. there's no reason to come. I I do think that if the government is going to give cash. Um, and take an equity stake in Qantas, then probably it should take an equity stake in Virgin yeah, if it can get a sense. similar yeah. um, deal. I, I, I'm certainly not of the view the government should be picking winners. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 and, and, and again, and uh, what I read is that the government is basically saying, like, you know, we want two airlines, but, you know, it could mean that we just support the launch of another airline. It doesn't have yeah. to be this airline. True. And, and maybe that's that's a perfectly fine yep, view. Yep, yep. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, I would just like the Qantas brand to stay because I love that brand. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have no affinity towards Virgin, so I have no opinion <laughs> on that. Um. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's some there's some view that I think you're right. That these are national assets. I mean, someone said on Twitter to me the other day, "Why don't we just let them go broke?" The answer is, well, if they do, how do you reckon you get to Sydney to Melbourne? I mean, it's not it's not a zero. And frankly, even if and the answer might be someone else will come into this market and do it, maybe they do. But again, I'm not entirely sure whether as a, as a country, as a society. So, you know, I, I'm I'm firmly firmly of the view that the economy is there to serve the society, not the other way around. And if you think about that from that perspective and say, do we want a couple of local, you know, competitive airlines to facilitate air travel around the country? I'm pretty sure we do. Now, I shouldn't exclude Rex, of course, from that, who are doing some stuff in in regional Australia. But we kind of want those guys to be here to be competitive. So, you know, we don't want a single monopoly player who's gouging us for, for fares. Um, that, yeah, we kind of do want that infrastructure, right, in the country. Yeah, I think that's, that's I think it's, it's right. I, again, I think the problem here might be for the government is that how many of these sort of things does it bail out? How much <laughs> money does it put? Because we have exactly, a lot of distressed exactly. assets. Um, Could I say it, that? I mean, if I... Airlines seem pretty important in yeah, my view yeah. because, uh, I mean, we have some great connectivity between our capital cities. It's very cheap. Yeah. If you think of the connectivity, it's very fast, it's very efficient, um, at least compared to, yeah, interesting, yeah. I think, like, you know, we can travel between our capital cities at very reasonable cost. Yeah. Uh, well, part of that is because a lot of capital cities are like, you know, most of them are in the eastern seaboard and, and the further distances are not uh, that much. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I do think that airlines are important and we should do something about it. But yeah, it's like I am happy that I'm not part of the people who are trying to make those decisions because these are, there's a lot of decisions to be made. Right I, I kind of wish I was. I, let, let, me, let me throw something at you, right? If you knew, you could, so let, let's let's say you're let's say you're Australia Incorporated, right? You're the government. You're you get to be the treasurer or the finance minister, or maybe I want the job. But anyway, we'll work it out between us. We'll job share it. There you go. Okay, it's tough economics. We'll work from home. We'll job share it. Um, if I could borrow for less than one percent, yeah, and I knew that I had effectively the, the entire national GDP at my disposal. Now we don't want governments tax one hundred percent of GDP, but you know, we, we, the, as the government, as as a proxy for the Australian society, can borrow at one percent, has an enormous ongoing cash flow from that tax base, and can buy quality assets that are distressed. And we can argue about how quality quality is, but just conceptually, let's move us off the airlines. Talk completely hypothetically at the moment. If you knew you could basically buy whatever asset you wanted to at a dirt cheap price with a 1% borrowing cost, mm-hmm. it's almost negligent for the government not to be actively considering it, isn't it? I mean, I've made the point before, I think on the podcast, that I'm not entirely sure even that the government should be buying back natural shares in natural resource companies at stupidly low prices when they go low because if I can buy BHP and then take back A, the natural resources, B, all the royalties, and 
borrow one percent to do that isn't isn't it at some level i don't want the government to necessarily run these things permanently i don't think that's been useful i think our government institutions largely that have been privatized are better private than than public but isn't there an argument for the government simply to take advantage of super low borrowing costs super low asset prices and a an infinite an infinite time frame and buy some of these assets when they become available at super cheap prices oh there is, there is. I, I think again it depends on how you want to do it. You know, you, you they could take preferred shares. They could, you know, uh, have some convertibles right, and things right. like that. Uh, still have the business run professionally. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Like, I mean, right now, like, I mean, you are really getting them at distressed prices. And, and right. it is like, I mean, if you can just sit out yeah, yeah, next yeah. two, three years, you know, you're probably going to make a good return on it. And again, if you take a portfolio <clears throat> approach, if I could buy if I could buy a stake in, in two airlines, a couple of natural resources companies, you know, if it comes to it, a couple of infrastructure businesses, maybe you get Sydney Airport on the cheap or Transurban or something, or even, not even buy the business, just if you're buying stakes in these companies yeah. with reliable cash flows, with national assets already that are literally in the country, yeah. you know, I mean, Australia owns and gets rent or, or profits from everything, a ton of iron or BHP digs up or every barrel of oil that oil search drills, at least in Australia. It's just, I, I just, I mean, I know we're supposed to have a separation of government. I know we don't want governments necessarily, you know, we... A lot of us don't love the fact that governments own or operate massive parts of the economy. But man, if you could, even the future fund, if you could literally buy large stakes in these things at bugger all borrowing costs and keep them for an infinite period of time until the price were attractive enough to sell, it just seems like a really, really obvious thing to do. Yeah, I think, it, and it's like, a, you know, a little bit of a government backstop. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's good. Uh, again, at, at distressed prices, I, I agree with you. All right, let's move on. Unfortunately, speaking of distress, though, we're going to go to the media sector. Stand by. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. So, mate, uh, full disclosure up front, I appear on Weekend Sunrise on Channel 7. I also have appeared on most other television networks from time to time. So I, I don't ha- I don't get paid by any of them, by the way. I have absolutely no... Um, uh, absolutely no, no, no. There's no dog in this fight from that perspective. But just to just fully disclose, I do appear on Sunrise Seven West Media this week. Um, the CEO sent out a letter which is pretty blunt, quite frankly. It must have sent significant shockwaves through the through the, the the company. Seven West is making all of its staff who aren't covered by an enterprise bargaining agreement, who earn more than eighty grand a year, take a twenty percent pay cut and start working four day weeks. And if you earn over two hundred grand at Seven. You have a twenty percent pay cut. And you still have to work the five days a week. Um, now, maybe that's justified. I, I can't argue with that. But this is a pretty serious deal. They're talking about the fact that there is uh, revenue fall off from advertising being cut. I know News Corp are closing the printing of all their regional newspapers or suspending it. I should say for a while. A lot of independent regional newspapers are suspending printing. Um, Nine has talked about the fact that while ratings are up, revenue is soft. It really is impacting you know a very very large portion of the media industry right now this simple drop off in revenue and i guess if you think about who normally advertises Woolies and coles might still be advertising but frankly as long as they need to get people into the stores we're coming already we're buying every bit of toilet paper we can find the airlines and travel companies that are normally big big spenders for discretionary dollars obviously aren't advertising um and the rest of the economy is kind of not sure whether to put money into advertising or not i mean if no one's spending then there's no point trying to get people to to you know come to you rather than somebody else if they're not going to simply open their wallets either way seven west was already full of debt it was already at a very low share price this will help them get through they're saying only till 30th of june for now and they are letting staff use up unused annual leave before they have to take that unpaid fourth day so there's you know there's there's some softening there but i don't know about you i I don't i mean i'd rather have a four-day week than get sacked but 
must be pretty brutal to get an email from the CEO almost sight unseeing saying, hey, guess what? From from tomorrow, we're sent out Tuesday, started on Wednesday. From tomorrow, you're getting paid 20% less, don't come in on Friday. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's really hard. I mean, it's better than being sacked, as you said, right? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the, the better. I mean, instead, they could have decided to, you know, we're going to... Um, uh, retrench um, 10% of our workforce, 20% of our workforce. Instead, they didn't, mm. you know, this is, you know, in a way, this is a little bit like, you know, spreading the, spreading the pain around. Mm. And maybe, maybe I actually don't, I prefer that model, maybe, <laughs> over the model <laughs> of just sacking people. Yeah. Because, yeah. um, uh, you know, that, that is a huge morale downer versus this model. So, yeah. so I actually uh, would applaud them for, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, 20%. Less money means yeah. you know that's twenty percent less cash coming in. Um, uh, it's it's brutal, but at the same time, I mean, they're in, in in the media industry is as you said, right? It's you know it's all the flow on effects, right? If the retail is not open, there's no advertisement for retail, and if people are not working retail, there's no money coming in from retail. You know, it's all the you know, and the shops are not open. So yeah. I mean, what yeah. are people advertising right now for? Um, that's right. So that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough business. So I. I I would applaud their decision. I think mm, this is a mm. good decision that they've taken instead of, uh, you know, and, and let's see what they can do. You know, they've, they've, this is a temporary solution as, as they've indicated anyway. So. Hopefully, hopefully they get through it. And it's not, I mean, no no, uh, no guarantee they get through it, right? And that's, I guess, the challenge. Traditional media is really challenged right now. Yeah. Very, very high overheads, declining viewership. Although, the, if there is a glimmer of hope, I suppose, the coronavirus actually sent people back to their TVs for their, their nightly and the, the kind that of evening news. Mm. I, I am fortunate to be invited to appear on Channel 9's evening news uh, from time to time. And they have had, I believe, up to one and a half million viewers watching a nine thirty news bulletin, which is phenomenal around the country. That's kind of close enough to what one in one in eight, one in seven adults, something like that. Which is, you know, at that time of night, uh, a sign that we are desperate to find out what's going on. And I guess, you know, you don't, you don't want to capitalise necessarily on, on bad news and misery, but that's certainly what's happening. They're, they're getting people watching because they're delivering delivering good content. If only they get the advertisers back to the back to the door. All right, mate. Let's move on from that one. Our last stop on the. Tale of woe, unfortunately, and back to capital raising is kind of where we started. Is Kathmandu? Um, this is a. I don't. I haven't looked at the numbers, man. I haven't looked at the chart, but in the, you know, you kind of you pick up stuff and you kind of file it away loosely over time. This has been, I think, probably the the, the most boom and bust retailer that I can recall in the last five or ten years. Now, there's something that's gone bust entirely, right? So, yeah, it's not going to be the worst retailer. I'm certainly not saying that, but Kathmandu has gone from, you know, some years had phenomenal growth. Other years it's had just phenomenal declines and now it's in a trading halt trying to raise money at 55 mm. New Zealand cents. Mm. Um, it's been just a, just a really, is it, it, it I don't even know what to make of it, mate. I, I'm speculating that maybe it's because it's products are not only discretionary but kind of faddish and kind of seasonal, that maybe there's something there. I mean, of course, if you make outdoor gear, no one's going outside. So that's a tough thing in general anyway. It does, I don't know, it, 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 some years it's a 20% growth. Other years, like now, where they're in, they're in real trouble. What do you make of Kathmandu? Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of those things that you said, right? I mean, it, it's outdoors, so you know, if people are not outdoors, then it's going to suffer. Um, you know, it's probably dependent on weather, how people, you know, if weather is good, people are out. You know, maybe they're buying stuff, they're maybe you know, camping gear and you know, mm. hiking gear and things like that. Um, yeah, it, it's been it's been all over the place. I mean, I don't follow that retailer that closely, but right. like pretty much like any other retailer, right? I mean, you're really in a tough spot. Yeah, yeah. So it's 
yeah, I think that's right. That, that's that's the that's the challenge, right? And this is I don't know. I I'm still not sure, mate. We'll 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 probably try and spend some time after this crisis looking back and and, and sharing some of these, our thoughts with our listeners. But I. I I really struggle to, notwithstanding your, your rant about Webjet and Cochlear, I really struggle to blame almost any company for not being able to withstand this sort of thing. I don't know how you could have reasonably in any planning, in any even if someone had mentioned it at the end of a board table once, to, of, all, of all, if you'd listed the, the 155 most likely scenarios, the whole, hey guys, what if the economy gets shut down for six months, you know, and there's no one spending money and no one going to work, or not no one, but effectively nobody, other than our, our wonderful health workers. Um, you know, there is... I, I really can't honestly blame anybody for not having prepared for this. Yeah, like I'm not blaming uh, blaming that. You know, my point with Cochlear and I'm not saying uh, you were by the yeah, way, but I'm just yeah. as, I wasn't even disagreeing yeah. with your point. I, More I, just that sense of Kathmandu or anybody else. I'm kind of like, man, that sucks. But geez, I mean, if I was the CEO of a board member of any of these businesses, I don't know if I would have said, "Hey guys, maybe we should make sure we can, you know, we can we can withstand a pandemic." It just it wouldn't have ever been one of the top. 200 ideas, wouldn't it? Yeah, but, but but you know, like as we tell people, right, we'd say that, you know, you should have a rainy day fund that will allow you to maybe last <laughs> yeah, six right, to one right, year. Right. I mean, maybe that's, a, say, you know, six months to a year. Maybe that should mm. be also applied to companies, right? I mean, yeah. um, I, I, I think it's just a case of being... Now, retailers are, it's, it's, it's you know, they they have large fixed costs. Yeah. So, so some businesses don't have large fixed costs, right? So I would, I'd be much harsher on something like, say, Webjet, because it shouldn't have that large fixed cost in the, yeah, okay. to start off with, yep. right? In theory, As it a should, proportion of its sales. Sales. Yep. And uh, in theory, it should actually have no debt, right? Um, unless it's using debt to, you know, pay dividends, for example. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, right. I mean, that sort of idea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas retailers, I get it, you know, you need to have a go down, you need to have stores, you have the, you know, fixed cost of stores, you know, have to pay rent. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I, I get it. And, and therefore, you can run into trouble very quickly, even if you have cash, because you, you, you know, you might have covenants on those debts and things like that. So, I mean, I don't know whether I would, I would, maybe this is, you know, maybe companies really need to think hard about, um, what they do, I would not yeah. absolve them of, you know, I get it that this is uh, unseen, but, you know, management is paid a lot of money to deal with these things. Boards are paid man. a lot of money You're a hard for, man. you know, dealing with these <laughs> things. So, Very good. Mate, should we dip into the mailbag? Let's do that. Let's do it. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right. Got some great questions through again this week. A heap of great questions over the last seven days, which is awesome. Um, I will give you our social media accounts before I give you the mailbag because we've got to pay the piper. And frankly, if I do it later, you won't be listening. So uh, as you as you get ready for our mailbag, warm up your... Uh, what's that vocal cords? That's what we're doing. What, are, what do you warm up? For you? Do you warm up your ears? How do you warm up your ears? Warm up your... Um, what are the tubes called? Little tubes between your ear and... Your, no? No idea. Dude, you're the doctor. You're supposed to know those things. Warm up the. There's a little tube between your ear. Anyway, uh, speaking of tangents, get ready. Get ready. <laughs> if you want to contact us on social media, you can, and we'd like you to. Um, hit us up on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU, at Anirban Mahanti, at Scott Phillips, a uh, TMF Scott P. Sorry, how am I going? At TMF Scott P. I was supposed to say your name matters through my name in as if that was mattering. <laughs> at TMF Scott P on Twitter. That's how you get us. Instagram, the same for The Motley Fool. So at The Motley Fool AU or at TMF Scott P. Doc is not yet 
on Instagram, but keep that hashtag, hashtag getdoc on Insta rolling. Uh, and you can also hit myself and The Fool up on Facebook at Scott Phillips Money on Facebook or at The Motley Fool Australia, unsurprisingly. Pretty straightforward. I'm sure the Google machine or the Facebook search will get you there as well. So have a look. Get us, Give us some thoughts. Give us some feedback. Give us some questions. If you have any thoughts on anything we've talked about, by the way, in this podcast, feel free to weigh in as well. Um, just jump on and let us know what you're thinking. Use uh, tag us in your in your questions or your comments. We'll we'll love to hear and interact with you about that stuff. All right, of course. Sorry, I should I should my last one. If you aren't on the socials, like Doc, you're not on Instagram, you're not on the others as well. You can email us info at fool.com.au and that'll get to us as well. All right, mate. First one came from Sean a couple of weeks ago. I, I love this one. I want to I want to pick it up again because uh, uh, did I do this one last week? I don't remember. I don't think I did. Um, he, uh, Sean said to me, and this is, you'll like this document. Didn't you do this last week? I'm this not comes, sure. with some, comes with detail. Hey, Scott, I'm sitting on my lunch break and I had one of those weird shower thought moments. What's your old mate Bernie Sanders up to? Well, this could be the crash he's been waiting for. Has he sunk any serious money anywhere? Slightly curious. Love your work, you absolute legend. Now, I didn't think it was Bernie Sanders. I said, are we sure? It's, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't dislike Bernie Sanders, but he's not exactly a mate of mine. I've never mentioned him before, but I, I appreciated Sean asking what Bernie Sanders was up to. Turned out, I asked him, Ended up being Warren Buffett he was asking about. Just some sort of uh, brain snap when he went to type Warren Buffett, he typed in Bernie Sanders. I'm not sure those two blokes would uh, spend a lot of time together, Doc, I've got to say. I don't think I can't so. Imagine, I can't imagine they having dinner that, that frequently, but you never know. So I guess it's possible. Um, so, Doc, you're a, you're a big Warren Buffett fan, as our, as our regular listeners know well. I'm very big fan. What do you reckon Warren Buffett's up to? Well, well you know, here's the funny thing, right? Warren Buffett's got some cash. If, if 128 what? billion US last time, I think yeah, I Yeah, 128 billion, but... That'll pay some bills. That'll pay some bills. So uh, <laughs> I guess he's... That's looked, six months cash. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, I'm going to take a dig here. He owns also oh, a lot of airline stocks. Here we go. <laughs> <Here's> <laughs> Apple as well, come on. Well, he owns one good company and a bunch of stocks that are probably going to zero or near zero. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, here's the thing. Like, you know, actually, he, I think I checked up what he owns. He owns Southwest Airlines and yep, Delta. Delta, yep. Uh, and I think United as well, United yes. Continental. Um, so actually, Southwest Airlines is a pretty well-run airline. But I mean, it doesn't matter how well-run the airline is. If the airlines are not flying, right. there's a bit of a problem. Right. Um, so all, I, I, I feel, I don't, I'm not sure I feel sorry for him or whether I, I mean, so Buffett famously for years said he bought some airline stocks in like the 80s or 70s mm. and he wrote in his annual report that he'll never do it again if you ever see him doing it he's got a phone number he's going to call Aeroholics Anonymous and mm. you know try and get someone to talk him off the ledge so he doesn't buy any airline stocks and then a couple of years ago he just couldn't help himself and he went and bought airline now again I don't blame him no one could have seen this coming but for a bloke who spent so long saying airline stocks were terrible and then all of a sudden everyone realized, thought he might have made a, you know, finally either the airlines turned the corner or Buffett got soft or something. For all the wrong reasons, yeah. he's still wrong. He's, <laughs> so the he's, poor bloke has, has yeah. spent, you know, again, not poor bloke, he's, he's got more than enough cash to keep him keep him in uh, in clothes. But <laughs> yeah, it was, he yeah. avoided it for such a long time. He bought it seemingly for the right reasons and he was right for a while until this hit. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, so maybe he's waiting with his cash to put, some of that cash in some preferred shares in, in one of these airlines which is going to probably become like one-tenth of the value. Well, that's Sean's question, right? So what do you reckon Buffett's doing with his cash? Or going to do with the cash? Well, I have a couple of feelings uh, in knowing what Buffett is doing. If now, I have advice for Buffett, <laughs> which if, uh, you know, I, I, if, if he follows my advice, he's going to make money. Uh, I would just have been buying more Apple shares or some other very high-quality company that's available on discount. Mm. But, you know, uh, knowing what Buffett has done that is mm. invested in airlines, he's probably going to buy some preferred shares on airlines. Lines, or he's going to buy some preferred shares in oil companies. This is the other, you know, yeah. oil companies are in in trouble as well because of the falling air oil price. Um, yeah, I don't really know. Other than this, I mean, 
Here, uh, okay, I don't want to sound more gloom and doom, but here's the other thing that I like to say um, is uh, we, there has been no Lehman Brother moment yet yeah. in this crisis, and maybe there won't be one, and maybe there will be one, right? And describe the Lehman... So Lehman Brothers moment, I know you're talking about the fact that Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yeah. And that was seen by some as... No, it wasn't the depth of the crisis, but it was kind of the point at which the crisis maybe got real or maybe jolted people into, into kind of realising something was going on. Yeah. It, it, it's a funny, even in hindsight, actually, it, we can't talk about Lehman Brothers moment as a, as, a, as a throwaway line, not throwaway line, but, you know, as a, as a kind of summary of a, of a point. It, it wasn't the end though, it wasn't the beginning. It was kind of, there was some sense of it being, it was, it was kind of like, the, it, was it was it the the point at which we all realised it was real or the, the, the things got real? How, how do you define that? No, so what, what I mean when I say Lehman Brothers, I mean a couple of things. One, I mean that, imagine this, right? The GFC happened, so the global financial crisis happened, a big bank failed. Yep. Right, and you know, a couple of others would have failed had yeah, okay. had the Fed not stepped stepped in. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. Right, yep. The 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 U.S. Fed basically stepped in and saved some some of these yep. banks or the yep. insurance companies and things like that. Right, and that's what actually like uh, uh, Buffett got sweetheart deals on uh, Bank of America, for example. Mm. Right, Bank of America, I think Bank of America. Yeah, yeah, Bank of America. Bank, Bank yep. of, he got like yep. preferred shares, and yes. they actually made him yes. a yes, ton yes, of yes. money. Yeah. Right, ten percent interest rate from him. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, he made burden, preferred yeah. shares, yeah. first in line to you know, first in line at the accredited list, and he, you know, and he got some really, really sweetheart yep. deals there. Now, I will say only for, only for detail for. for Maybe I feel a bit defensive of Uncle Warren. It wasn't like he was offered something no one else was offered. He was simply the only person available to make the deal. Yeah, so yeah, he was able yeah. to set the terms. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I mean, you know, again, I, I do not, I mean, anybody who can get those deals yeah. will get those oh, deals I, I, because yeah. they have the money to get those deals. I it's, just want to make the point for our listeners that it, was, it wasn't that he all of a sudden got some inside running because no, someone, no, someone no, did him no, a favor. No, no, he no. He did them so, a favor and said, Well, he had the cash he, to he offer. Money. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's like what Bain is doing yeah. for Webjet. I mean, again, it's that's what happens, right? So, so yep. my point right now is, and maybe he's waiting for an equivalent moment, but nothing like nothing has failed yet. Yep. It's we have a lot of small things that are failing or in the in the fail or almost failed category, distress category, but nothing yep. big has failed. Yep. And maybe he's waiting for that moment, and he's going to deploy some cash in mm-hmm. something big. <laughs> which is about to fail yeah. at that point. What that is, I don't know. If I knew that, then I would be a genius. Yeah, I mean, he right kept now. G afloat. I don't know whether he necessarily kept Bank of America afloat, but certainly they were better as a result of Buffett's injection. Yeah. At some point, there's the same kind of idea. It's a fascinating, and the, the reason I like Sean's question, I like your response, Doc, is that you know, in the past, Buffett kind of went for, he's become a bigger name, right? So he can kind of demand different deals. In the past, he bought Amex shares or Coke shares when those shares were cheap. And this is the 70s and 80s because they were just cheap. So he bought them. And he wasn't buying them as as the, he, the market didn't view him as they view him today and the company certainly didn't view him as they did today. He just saw what shares and they were cheap. Now he kind of gets the opportunity to make that extra deal right with bigger businesses. He wasn't just buying a, a slice of a business on the market just to buy the shares. He gets to actually go and do those capital injections at, at very favourable prices that no one else is getting because he's able to do them. Yeah. It, is, it, is, it will be fascinating to see. I mean, look, he's, he said that his preference is always to buy whole companies He's looking for big. He drops his elephant gun, right? He'd like he'd like to put all that money to work in one company once and buy a business. And I'm sure if he's able to get a single deal done to buy a big company, that would absolutely be the top of his list if the company is the right one. Second down from that, as you say, is probably some sort of convertible deal at a very very attractive price where he gets paid very well for the debt and then gets the upside in the equity if he can get it, which is the Bank of America story. After that, I imagine. It's hard to imagine what he would do next. I mean, I guess he might give more money to his two lieutenants, Todd and Ted, to go and put money into public equities maybe or it's, it's a fascinating time to think about what he might do. Yeah, maybe he'd buy his own shares back. 
maybe or you know like again like i mean it's uh, i think it's an interesting juncture for him because i don't think the the highest quality businesses are they're not selling at like you know dirt cheap throwaway prices mm. because uh, they have the cash balance sheet like you know i mean you might get a discount on apple but it has got 210 billion dollars got more money than warren buffett has right um so maybe apple could buy warren buffett uh, you know <laughs> Berkshire, for example right uh, maybe they can have a reverse merger that'd there. be pretty funny um uh, the, the old uh, the old salpats brickworks cross shareholding you yeah reckon? like I mean, something like that right i mean here's the thing, that's the thing right those businesses those businesses are literally shut off yeah and and they would still be fine they could be shut down for like three years yeah. and it'll still be okay yeah. so so i think that's the problem so he would if i, I think there will be opportunities and things like airlines yeah um the other thing that i have been thinking about this in in a thing of buffett lens is more people not working more businesses shut down this is going to have an impact on things like malls and the re- the the commercial real mm-hmm. estate yeah yeah maybe there's opportunity in the commercial real estate space so yeah. that you know those are things you know, the type of businesses the buffett might go for right right, right. like you know some high quality uh you know commercial real estate sort of you know mm-hmm. trust for example that he buys into or oil company like you know like again that's your standard, uh, yeah. so, th- so those are things pipelines um I just can't think of a whole public equity company. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah, right? maybe an auto company. Yeah, yeah. like you know, I, I think he has a stake in GM, for example. I think not sure. I'm not, actually, I'm not so sure. I was going uh, to Car. I might have bought Carmax actually. I can't remember. Yeah, anyway, there's. there's I think he has a stake in GM. I'm not. Sure. Even if it is, it's sure. like a small. Sure. small yeah. I'm making not 100 sure. It's yeah. probably really small. So something like that yeah. could happen. It's 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 going to be interesting. But again, maybe he's waiting for like a Lehman Brother type thing to to uh, to. Or maybe he's going to just. Or maybe he's just buying equities. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to. Or maybe buying nothing. I mean, he's he's, he's famously kept that in cash rather yeah. than putting into equities over the past little while because he's waiting for that big opportunity. The hardest part for Buffett is most of his purchases have been in recent times public, uh, private companies, I should say, because he's able to do a deal without paying a, a massive premium. Share prices have been high in his view for a while. Um, the challenge, of course, is that private companies don't fall the same way public companies do when it comes to these sort of market events because private owners tech, you know, generally have a longer-term view where they don't get their equities priced every day. So just because the public markets are down 25-30% doesn't mean that private companies are going to sell out that sort of discount either I don't think yeah I think so and and you know it depends on how they run if they have enough cash they'll just ride it through they're not going to do a sweetheart deal exactly which kind of makes it harder if you, if you buff it there you go alright uh, my next question comes from Daz Daz says hey Scott and Doc great work with the podcast thank you Daz you're a good man you legends do a fantastic job I love it have a hopefully fun question for the podcast I like this mate this is just a really random one mate. I thought we'd include it because we've just done enough enough kind of you know Doom and gloom stuff. I use Self Wealth as my choice of broker. As much as I love the platform, the social elements are a bit of a downer. Who enjoys logging into their portfolio only to be told you're in the bottom 50% of users? Anyways, my question if you guys had a, Doc and, a Scott and Doc online brokerage platform, how would you incorporate social elements, if at all? Cheers, Daz. I, I just think I thought it was a really fun question, mate, because it's just a really left field one. Gives a chance just to speculate a little bit. But also, I thought it was interesting because we talk a lot about temperament, about the kind of behavioral elements of investing and we also know we've got i think you're a bit more critical of social media than i am but we, we both know there's obviously both good and bad parts of social media and you can the balance of the good and bad depends on the day and who you're following um so who's following you potentially um all of that said how how would you think about incorporating social a social element into a brokerage business if we had the what is it called the scott and doc online brokerage platform the sdobp which is going to be launched <laughs> Tomorrow morning. And what are we going to do, mate, for social? 
So let's say you, just, you, you know, I have mixed feelings about this. So, so one, it's a fun question. It's a fun question. Uh, mixed feelings in the sense that it really depends on what you're trying to capture with the social media. So, like you know, like with most things, I would think that uh, it, the results are going to have some sort of like you know um, a parallel equation to it, right? So there'll be ten percent okay. of the um, of the users who are going to be like you know in the top, you know. Uh, top bracket yeah. the rest of this is going to be a long tail of you know average to mediocre performance <laughs> yeah, right true. And then and then the other problem is that it depends on measurement time frames right so if if for example i'm measuring people's performance over two month in intervals one month interval one year interval you know what is optimal is hard to know right should i measure on 10 years because then i might be um i might be getting results based on past performance, which is probably not going to be reflective of future performance, for example. Yeah, right. So I have really mixed feelings about social and performance tracking yeah, yeah. on social. Yep. What I would find useful in, in a social context is if I could get thoughts of people. Yeah. And if there was a way to sort of, you know, filter those yeah, thoughts right, okay. and, you know, Basically, I believe in crowd intelligence, but yeah. I don't believe in crowd decision making. Okay, right. So yeah. I, I believe in crowd intelligence in terms of you know um, people sharing their ideas, but I don't necessarily want to be guided by the individual's performance. So I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think because the problem with here's the problem with, with just looking at performance is it is. You're just watching performance, and you're not watching the yeah. the actions behind the performance. And right, maybe right. you know somebody can do some certain things which I can't do. Um, there's a lot of behavioral aspects in yeah. you know, um, in investing. So you know yeah. that, that's what I feel about it. It's an interesting idea. I don't think anybody has really cracked it. Okay. It's it's. I think it's a hard nut to crack. I, yeah, I, I like this question because it kind of <clears throat> it's the behavioral stuff that really got me, Daz. And I think. <sighs> See, so here's the thing. I, I, a bit like Doc. I, I like your... What is it, was it crowd... Intelligent or crowd decision making. I like that idea. Yeah. I also would say to some degree, as Doc's already pointed out, the, the crowd, to whatever extent it represents the market, is going to give you roughly the market's results. And you've really got to know and have belief that, as again, as Doc says, the person coming first, second, and third is actually doing it for a sustainable reason. If... And again, I'll go back to the GFC, right? If you listen to the guy during the GFC who got it right, in air quotes, and called the GFC... And then you say, oh, he's right there. I'm gonna f and, and his performance would be fantastic, right? Because he would have bought some short housing instrument and he'd be number one on the, on the charts. And you would have followed him then after that, knowing that he was the guy who got this right. And you probably would have had really substandard performance for the following 10 years because you picked a point in time to follow somebody who then subsequently didn't deliver the sort of returns that maybe you thought they might. Now, that's the same with any stock pick or any fund, by the way. We're not, we're not immune from that. You should absolutely look at all investors, all fund managers, all stock pickers, all opinion makers, all columnists, all... Twitter <laughs> ranters um, with the same lens. You know, wh what are they saying? Does it instinctively make sense? Is there a reason to believe them rather than I, I was right in this particular instance, therefore you should listen to me and follow me? I mean, there's no shortage of after dinner speakers and book authors who made a money out, made, made a fortune after being right once, right? Because you say it, you get a following, those people who already believe what you're going to say or will love you forever and will follow you forever and will keep following you, retweeting you, buying your books, going to your, going to your lectures. Uh, maybe, maybe maybe that's the point. Maybe there's a, a business option there that I'm missing. Um, so look, I, I, would, I would actually steer away from being a little bit too caught up in that. I think there's value, as Doc says, in the why, 
And and that's probably the, the bit behind it, right? Is if they're right, why are they right? Do you, not necessarily do you believe why they're right? Because you can be careful of confirmation bias as well. If I'm looking for Warren Buffett to make good decisions, I'm going to automatically think his decisions are good, right? And I'm going to be, I'm going to start with a positive spin. Doc's going to think Apple's acquisitions are great because he's going to start with a positive spin. They're smart people. I can see why they say they're doing it. That seems right to me. Um, those natural biases come in. We're looking, we're not even looking for it. We subconsciously look for confirmation bias. You want to be very careful and make sure that it's a genuine reason. And you want to actually look for people who've changed your mind rather than confirmed your view because they're the really useful insights. When someone genuinely changes your mind with a good argument, that's often more useful than someone who simply confirms your existing belief because you're probably likely to think they're right anyway before you start, which is not very useful. So I think I'd probably look at that. I'd probably look at some way of capturing contrarian views or variant perceptions in some helpful way. So you can actually, and, and Dr. E kind of covered it, right? Bubble up those different thoughts that help to improve your own thinking rather than, and you use those successful people for that. Um, the other thing I'd do is I'd, I'd absolutely overweight longer term performance. So if you've got to be careful, if you think about how a, some sort of portfolio tracking might look, um, how long have those positions been held? And, and is that a sustainable strategy? And the problem with, with any social product is it takes a long time for that to be true, right? If you're waiting for a five-year performance, it's not very useful for you for the first five years the business is in existence. But if you find someone who can outperform over years, that's a much, much more useful indicator than someone who's been right for a couple of picks or in the short term or has a big short-term performance because one or two stocks have done well. So I'd be, I'd be looking at the overall success over the longest possible time frame. Now, is that possible? I don't really know. Um, interestingly enough, The Motley Fool has its own kind of part social media kind of game or, or it's called the CAPS platform. It's in the US, not here. So I can't recommend you use it because it would break the AFSL rules. I think we'd be very unhappy if I recommended uh, non-AFSL covered financial products. But um, suffice it to say, I've, I've jumped on our CAPS platform. It used to stand for something. Doc, you remember what it stands for? Um, I actually don't remember. I can't remember. So, I mean, just a cap, right? So it was a play on the, a play on the just a cap. In any case, I think I'm in the top 25% of performers on that platform. And I don't think I've changed a position in about eight years. I, I, I jumped on, I shouldn't let the boss hear this. I jumped on like 2011, 2012 and, and picked some stock, picked in air quotes some stocks and then just let them, you know, US stocks, let them just sit there. I've done nothing with them since really. I think I had to make them active again just to make sure they kept going. And they weren't necessarily wonderful businesses even. I picked mostly, you know, kind of the brands I knew and some Australian companies with US listed stocks and left it there. And I'm in the top 20, 25% of that group just because I haven't done anything. And that's probably, it's the maybe maybe that's actually the biggest, uh, the biggest lesson. You can be in the top 25% just by not being very active. All right, mate, that was a bit of a ramble. Any thoughts on that before we move on from Daz's question? No, I, I think those are great thoughts. That was fun. All right, mate, here's a big one from Craig. Craig says, love the podcast. Been listening since I started investing early 2017. Relied on ShareAdvisor all the way for Australian and US stocks and very pleased. Added EO six months ago. Thanks, Anivan, for some exciting ideas so far. Is Craig your brother or mine? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> he's, been, he's been very kind. He's been um, kind, yes. Okay, so he says, um, I have a question for the podcast. I have a friend who has 50 grand and asked me a few months ago about investing in shares. I warned her she needs a three to five year minimum time horizon. Well done, Craig. Good man. Luckily, she procrastinated and only now she is keen again because she figures the one in whatever crash I warned her about has already happened. Fair enough. She seems keen on individual shares and I've told her about the podcast. I'm going to suggest she puts her first 30% into ETFs to have a less volatile foundation, though I don't use them myself. My question is about ASX EX20 is the code, EX20, a beta shares ETF of, of the... ASX 20th to 200th stocks. In other words, it's the 200 excluding the top 20. I like it as it gives the ASX 200 without the overload of banks and miners. What do you think about this ETF? 
I plan to suggest the first 30% is split between the EX20, VAS, which is the Vanguard Australian Shares Fund, and NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100. What do you reckon? So again, we can't give specific advice, Craig, to you or to your friend, but we can always give our thoughts on the investing strategy and those particular ETFs. Mate, what do you think about the ASX EX20? And what do you think about the strategy between of splitting it between that, the Vanguard Australian Shares 300, and the NASDAQ? Cool, Craig, mate, that is a good question. And I congratulate your friend for uh, the willingness to invest and think long term. That is really, really useful. Um, and for having actually saving, which you can actually invest in the market, which is, again, awesome. Um, with respect to EX20, actually, this is the first time I've heard of this this product. So I'm coming up with the my opinion right now. I think it's an interesting product um, because it gets, uh, I guess, it takes away um, uh, part of the sectors that I'm not very bullish on. Uh, but at the same time, it's a modified index, basically. Yeah. So you're getting uh, the 180 top companies minus the top 20. Um, uh, so, I mean, it, it, that's that. Um, the Okay. And then... Yeah, I'm actually actually kind of lukewarm on this sort of product, to be okay. honest. Uh, because, you know, again, it's like an index, but it's not really an index. <laughs> um, there's going to be probably a higher management fee for this. So is it really worth it? It's probably going to do a little bit better than the, uh, uh, you know, on average, I'd guess it's going to do slightly better than the ASX 200 uh, because of its weighting. Um, and I'm guessing it's market cap weighted on the remainder. So uh, I think interesting, but, I'm not that keen on it. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Uh, and I have very good reasons for it, but I just think that, you know, um, uh, well, that's one reason for it. So then uh, allow me to answer the second part where you're talking about the split and without going into the details of how much the split, again, that depends on what a person wants to do. Mm. Um, the first thing I'll point out between EX20 and um, the Vanguard All Australian shares. So the VAS example being cited, if I remember correctly, that is the that has ASX three hundred. Correct. Right now, so here's the thing, right? You're getting a lot of overlap between the EX twenty and the VAS product because you're going to get the you're going to get the hundred and eighty that are there in the middle. You're going to get the banks and the miners with the VAS, the Vanguard All Australian Shares product. And then you're going to get the the tail end uh, of the you know the from the 201 to the 300 uh, in terms of liquidity. Right. So there's a lot of you basically overloading on that side. Uh, you're getting the banks. You're getting some of the other stuff. So if you want, like in my personal view, is if you want Australian shares exposure and you want to buy an index, probably the VAS is a good one because while it does give you exposure to the banks, you're effectively buying the market, right? This is really, the VAS product is really a good way to buy the market and therefore you can get the market's return. Now, the market has already dropped, in this case, substantially, well, 30%, it can mm -hmm. drop more, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it's like at a point where if you kind of hold for some time, and you have like you know you've got a longish enough horizon. You kind of likely to make money more yeah, right. more often than not make money from from this position. Now, how much are the returns going to be? It's hard to say, but you know like probably make seven percent, eight percent annualized, uh, plus get some good franked dividends along the way. Um, you know, let's assume that. So that that's the thing. Uh, I don't know what the composition of dividends is going to be for the X twenty. Uh, so mm. um, considering the overlap. I would say that it's just enough to probably just have VAS as an example. 
Right. And and VS in combination, in some combination with um, with the Nasdaq 100, mm. seems like a, a, seems like a good combo. If I had to make a wager, I would say the Nasdaq 100 is going to beat uh, the and the ASX all ordinaries, um, given that they've both fallen, and just just looking at the you know the one basically captures the whole market, the other basically captures um, you know top one hundred in tech. Mm. Um, uh, my wager would be on that side, um, notwithstanding the 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 USD to AUD sort of conversion at this point. So I mean, um, I would I would actually not look at. Um, if I, I had actually an alternative thought, you know, what I would do really is I would split the money between Australia, uh, NASDAQ 100, and and emerging market, right? And I would probably put like an Asian ETF, for example, like the mm. Asia ETF that we have recommended mm. in uh, Extreme Opportunities. I'd put that in the mix and that would be my split. Uh, you know, and that's what I would do is it's just, just if, if somebody asked me, that's what I would do without knowing their secretary, a very general sort of thoughts, yep. uh, not specific advice, but you know, yeah. Those, those are my wrinkles. Nice. I'm not going to go too much longer than the doc because he's going to give a really good summary. We want to wrap this up and get on to uh, something else. What do you reckon? Should we have a mailbag episode this Sunday? Maybe, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All right, there you go, fools. Special mailbag episode this Sunday. Surprise. You're probably not super surprised, but surprise. We're going to do one, so stay tuned for that one. In the meantime, I'm going to quickly answer the question. Look, I... So here's the thing. I Firstly, Craig, good on you for helping your friend and good on your friend for getting started. Hopefully your friend is now listening to this podcast. If so, hello, Craig's friend. Um, it's a it's a really useful thing to start with ETFs, particularly if you're brand new to investing. And I've got to say, I think right now is a really good time to add to an ETF because sometimes when the market's kind of up and around average or, or, or you know, it's been going for a while, you want to try and beat the market average um, to get extra return. Now, you always want to do that, including now. But right now, just investing in the market, I think it's going to be a really attractive way to make money over the long term. I just think when it's off a third from its previous highs, and again, assuming the market gets back to those previous highs, which is always done, you just buy the market and get a 50-ish percent return just by you know effectively waiting for that to happen. Um, so I think starting with ETF is a great start um, and, and good news for giving, giving it a go. I haven't looked in the ASX20 a whole lot either, and I actually frankly found it really difficult to benchmark the index, which is what has stopped me thus far. It's based on the NASDAQ completion cap index, which is a, a made-up index, which basically tracks exactly the ETF itself, which is the ASX 20 to 200 stocks. Um, so that you kind of, you know, you expect it to track against itself. If it's an index, then by definition, you'd expect it to, the ETF to deliver against that index less fees. So it's kind of, it's not very useful to say, you know, we've created an index for it and then we're going to match it and guess what we did. Um, you'd expect that from an ETF in the first place. That being said, I'm... I'm still pretty interested in this particular ETF. Now, for what it's worth, over the last five years, VAS has delivered 6.2% a year. And this particular NASDAQ has delivered over five years, the index is 9.14. So you know, per year, that's a pretty decent outperformance. Doesn't mean it's going to happen forever. My guess is, by the way, the banks will fall more than the rest of the market over the next couple of months. So maybe it'll actually keep outperforming for a little while yet. I, I do, I, unlike Doc, I kind of think I would go this one rather than VAS. Um, I just don't love the banks and the miners. I've got to say, I'd be more than happy not to have them. Now, that being said, as he rightly points out, you are making some sort of bet against the banks by excluding them as you are betting for the banks if you include them in VAS. So neither is particularly agnostic. Um, the better option may well be some sort of, I don't love equal weight indices, but that actually might be the best one in the Australian context of getting something for everything in the top 200. So I might even prefer, without having looked at it in a lot of detail, some sort of equal weight 200 rather than either of these two. But I, I think I prefer the X20 over VAS, even though I do prefer 
uh, you know, a, a not-profit vanguard fund generally because you figure the, the fees can be lower over time. So I wouldn't I wouldn't exclude the X20. I don't think that what it, for what it's worth, I would actually buy this and VAS. I don't think you're necessarily helping yourself. If you're buying if you're buying the X20 to avoid the banks and miners, then adding back VAS, which has the banks and miners back in it, you kind of you know you are you are reducing your exposure a little bit because your you know one third of it goes into the banks and miners ETF, the other one another third goes into the X banks and miners ETF. But you're effectively doubling down on everything from 21 to 200. Now, if that's deliberately what you're trying to do, then go for it. Um, but the banks and miners fall from you know 50% to 25%, which is still a very very large chunk. So just think about how you want to allocate that. I agree with the NDQ, the NASDAQ. The other option is VGS, which is a Vanguard rest of the world fund. Um, again, depending on what your particular aims are. I own, I think I own both, I think, in particular my super fund. Um, so yeah, I, I think both are great. I think they're both really good options. I'm not as keen as Doc on the Asian idea, not for any good reason, and probably even as a mistake. Um, generally speaking, for my rest of world exposure, I'm happy to have Australia plus rest of world. And I'm happy to pick up Asia in that rest of world exposure rather than as a specific investment only because I'm trying to be passive with those and absolutely passive rather than kind of pick sectors or pick geographies. So if the, as I say, your mileage might vary, Doc's looking for actively choosing areas, ETFs that give him extra exposure and outperformance specifically. Um, I think I'll get that by the way with, with the NASDAQ and the VGS, but I'm looking for broad rest of world exposure as a purely passive product rather than maybe picking individual sectors, individual shares. But either way, I think it's a very, very smart strategy. Doc, anything else on that one? No. Beautiful. Fools, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back this Sunday, which is exciting. But before we go, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. If you like what we're doing, give us some stars, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Please tell your friends because we're ego-driven people who... No, I'm kidding. Uh, because we hope that we're adding some value to your life and we're pretty sure we could also help others if they just knew about our little podcast. So thank you for listening and please do pass on that good news. And of course, you can go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That page has currently got a special sign-up offer for Dividend Investor, one of our other services. You'll also go on our Take Stock mailing list so you get the emails that I send out about two or three times a week with what's on my mind, what's on our mind as a company and some marketing as well, full disclosure. Uh, so that's the way to get some of that. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.